Welcome to the 147th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On a wintry Saturday in January 2014, over 225 people gathered in the southeast Minnesota community of Winona for the Land Stewardship Project's Citizens Frack Sands Summit. This day-long event provided an opportunity for members of various communities to address one of the region's most pressing environmental issues, the mining of silica sand for use in hydraulic fracturing of oil and gas reserves. It turns out southeast Minnesota and western Wisconsin have vast amounts of just the kind of silica sand the industry is looking for. During the past few years, western Wisconsin in particular has experienced a kind of gold rush as massive corporations work to strip mine as much sand as possible and ship it to oil and gas drilling operations in places like Pennsylvania, Texas, and North Dakota. The result has been decimated landscapes. Entire hilltops have been removed, ruining farmland and eliminating the natural water purifying services sand can provide. In addition, frac sand processing facilities are producing air and water pollution. To top it off, rural roadways are being inundated with an unprecedented amount of truck traffic that's dangerous, polluting, and harmful to the transportation infrastructure of small communities. Now the frac sand industry has its eyes on southeast Minnesota and has in recent years used intimidation, government lobbying, and in some cases outright misinformation to get a foothold in the region. But citizens are fighting back. With the help of the Land Stewardship Project, several communities have established moratoriums on frac sand mining and processing while they develop planning and zoning regulations. In addition, LSB members and others have been organizing at the state capitol, where they are calling for strict regulations on frac sand activities, including an outright ban on the industry in southeast Minnesota's fragile karst region. The Frac Sand Citizen Summit brought together people to share strategy, learn from experts, and strengthen the movement to keep frac sand mining from destroying communities in southeast Minnesota and beyond. Featured speakers included citizens, local government experts, farmers, energy experts, and scientists, who are doing cutting-edge research on the effects of silica sand exposure. This podcast is the sixth in a series of programs featuring excerpts of presentations from the summit. In this installment, Jennifer Krill, Executive Director of Earthworks, discusses how extreme energy extraction threatens communities around the globe and how people are fighting back. Extreme energy. There is no doubt that our civilization is going to greater distances... We are drilling deeper in more inaccessible places. We're blowing the very tops off of mountains and hauling coal and oil and gas all across the country and increasingly around the world in order to maintain a dirty habit. Our dependence on fossil fuels is a very dirty habit with very deep consequences. The quality of what we've been extracting is lower than it used to be because the easy to access, easy to refine, cheap oil, coal, and gas is already gone, which is part of what's driving us to go to these greater extremes in order to feed our dirty habit. We generate energy, we move ourselves and our goods and our services around very inefficiently, as though we still had abundant, cheap, easy to refine, easy to access energy. I suspect that if you're in the room here today, you're in agreement with me on this point. We don't. A vast 
corporate power structure has grown up to support this supply, um, to keep us supplied with this energy at all costs, and that these are the suppliers that are keeping us addicted. And I want to tell you in a 12-step program opening moment right now, I flew here in a plane. I drove here in a car. And I know that we all confront these questions in our, in our daily lives. Every little decision we make, from the next car we're going to buy to how we're going to power our homes, we confront these decisions every day. Some of this is something that we can do something about ourselves. And some of it is something that we can't change without growing the power of the people. So that's what we're talking about here today, extreme energy. Um, I want to hone in on one form of extreme energy for obvious reasons, shale gas and oil, because that's what is driving the, the frac sand expansion here in this region, in the Driftless area. There are 34 oil and gas producing states in the U.S., including many new ones. Shale oil and gas has made oil and gas production more uh, generously expansive. The old conventional oil and gas, what, what they call conventional, is oil and gas that's pooled in, in reasonably constrained areas. And you can only drill in those particular areas in order to access that pool of liquid oil or that, that pocket of gas. But unconventional oil and gas is not liquid or gas at all. It's a rock. Extracting hydrocarbons from shale requires fracturing that rock. And your sand is helping the oil and gas companies break apart that rock. One mile underground, another mile drilled um, horizontally, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. It depends on where the formation is. As you can see, just as diverse as the United States is geographically, our, our geologic map is equally diverse. The Marcellus Shale is the most often used litmus test, which it is usually about a mile down and a mile across. But in California, we're talking about drilling two miles down. And in California, we don't have a flat pancake kind of geology. You've probably been to California. Those of you who have, you know that we're a little bit more geologically active. Um, so our Monterey Shale formation in some places is on the surface, and in some places it's two miles down. In some places it's thin as a pancake, and in some places um, it's a quarter mile thick. So there, there's a wide variation in what's going on with shale, and, and that leads to differences in how fracturing it happens and why it happens in certain places. But in general, shale oil and gas is a more generous hydrocarbon graphically than conventional oil and gas because you can go to so many places. So many places that you didn't used to be able to go to get your oil and gas. You go to towns 120 feet away from residential homes in Farmington, New Mexico. You can have uh, shale oil and gas uses, has, has tremendous air impacts for the people who live near there. And I'm going to transition to talking more about what some of these impacts are. Um, obviously, if you live next to a well, if you have a well literally in your backyard, then you are living right there in the pollution that's coming off of that wellhead. And a lot of it's invisible to the naked eye. But when we train infrared cameras on it, you can see what's coming off at the wellhead. You can see those emissions. And I've visited a lot of oil and gas wells in the last few years. And um, I can tell you, you can also smell them. Um, there's also air emissions from the waste pits, the waste impoundments where fracking occurs. This Fracking uses a lot of water. There are also risks to surface waters. Pennsylvania requires a 120-foot setback 
from rivers, lakes, and streams, homes, and structures. So uh, if, if there were a flood of this uh, stream, or as there was uh, tremendous flooding in Colorado in late 2013, and entire fracking operations and oil and gas fields were underwater for many days at a time, and when that all cleared, everything that you see there on the surface was spread out all over the place. Um, there's also impacts to drinking water. Uh, we're tracking a number of cases uh, nationally. The website ProPublica, about two years ago, so this information may even be out of date, documented 500 cases of suspected water contamination from fracking just based on news accounts, uh, not based on uh, citizen complaints or, or anything more comprehensive. A, a fellow on here, Steve Lipsky, I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks in Texas, he made great news when he was able not just to light his tap on fire, but he was able to turn his hose into a flamethrower. And water is a big problem, uh, both for what quantity of it goes in and what happens when it's mixed with, with chemicals and profits and becomes fracking fluid by the oil and gas companies. There's also the problem of the wastewater. And there aren't very many ways of dealing with wastewater from fracking. So it immediately gets stored on site in these impoundment pits, and then it can get pumped off-site, um, and then it can be stored in, in pits that are lined or that are not lined, and the regulations around those vary, and generally the number of enforcement and inspection, uh, inspection and enforcement um, cases are extremely low. We did a, a study in New Mexico and found that less than half of wells are inspected on an annual basis. In Pennsylvania, it's more like one-third. And then what you do with the water is uh, you can, in some states, it's considered to be agricultural grade, and you can spread it out on pasture land. The water is often very saline, so it's very good for de-icing roads, although I think Pennsylvania is starting to slow that practice down. It can be run through sewage treatment plants. You can just let it sit and evaporate, and what's left is a toxic sludge, which can then be taken to a municipal landfill. It's very seldom disposed of as hazardous waste because oil and gas production is exempt from the federal hazardous waste law. And then what's left, sometimes with the sludge in this pit, is just they, they take the plastic and they roll it up, what we call a toxic burrito. They bury it on site. Or the best outcome for surface use of the water, uh, for surface considerations, is for the fracking toxic waste to be pumped into underground injection wells. However, that practice has been linked to earthquakes in Ohio, Oklahoma, Arkansas, North Dakota, and now in Texas, where there's another spate of earthquakes going on, like the third or fourth swarm of earth earthquakes in Texas as a result of fracking wastewater um, uh, reinjection. So there's a lot to be said about water with fracking. There's also a lot to be said about the landscape impacts. Uh, wildlife biologists once um, described to me um, that fracking is like landscape measles. What we're looking at here is five-acre well pads at 20-acre spacing. At this level of density, you can imagine that if this is productive farmland, that's a lot of land taken out of production. It's a lot of grazing land taken out of production. It's a lot of wildlife um, capacity that no longer exists because of the fracking going on. But we always asked ourselves, used to ask ourselves, what's happening in the field? Like you, we, we know that there's um, infrared sensors showing that there's emissions coming off of the wellheads. We know that there's leaks in the pipelines. We know that the compressor stations, which is where the different gathering lines come together and compress the gas into, a, into the correct pressure to go into the larger pipeline to go into the system to take it to market. We know there's leaks there. The people who live around these things know that they're smelly and that they're leaking. 
So how much climate foot, what is the size of the climate footprint of the oil and gas production? And does that, what does that do for natural gas as it compares to coal? Um, professors Bob Howarth and Tony Ingrafia um, asked themselves this question, and, and their first paper came out a couple of years ago in the journal Nature. And the, the, the basic take-home message is that based purely on paper estimates, they didn't, at this time, they did not yet have the resources to do field measurements. Shale gas and conventional gas are actually more greenhouse gas intensive than coal because of the methane emissions from the field. And their methodology was purely on paper. They looked at things like the amount of gas that was brought to market versus the amount of gas that was recorded as being produced, and they, and they took the difference, and they found a, a certain leakage rate from that. At the time, in 2011, we didn't have a proper field study of methane emissions. Like, nobody had measured what those leakage rates were from the field. There still is not. Since 2011, there's still not a comprehensive U.S. study of methane emissions from the field, which is significant when you think about how large this industry is from those Google Earth photos. We've got 830,000 producing oil and gas wells in the U.S. We're drilling 4,000 more per month. We're fracking 90% of them. We have 300,000 miles of pipelines gathering all of this gas to, and bringing it to market. And we don't have a comprehensive picture of methane fugitive emissions from the field. But we did get last year a study in by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, of field emissions from the Uinta Basin in Colorado. And what they found is that the leakage rate is about 9% in one basin in, in a region that had had a lot of fracking. We need more study. But in the meantime, let's, to put this all in perspective, why methane is a big deal. Methane, which is what natural gas is, natural gas equals methane. They're the same thing. So when you have a natural gas leak in a pipeline, you have a methane emission in the field. Methane is... 72 to 105 times more greenhouse gas intensive in the atmosphere on a 20-year cycle than CO2 is. So if you're worried about global climate change and you believe what the climatologists tell us, that we need to be evening out our greenhouse gas emissions by 2015, 2020 at the latest, that 20-year cycle with a methane at that much more potent of a greenhouse gas is a very serious deal. With that level of potency, we need to keep field emissions of methane down below, fugitive emissions, down below 2%. And the first comprehensive field study of natural gas has it at 9%. So we've got a problem from a greenhouse gas perspective. I've mentioned a couple of things, uh, the, the uh, policy environment that has facilitated oil and gas booming at the rate that it's booming. And here are some of the exemptions. The exemption from the Clean Air Act um, for oil and gas production. There are a couple of things underway that can change that, um, but that's uh, uh, number two up there. They're exempt, they're exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act. Fracking explicitly is exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act. They're not entirely exempt from the Clean Water Act. What's exempt is what their discharges are on the surfaces, on the surface. So if you build a swimming pool, you would be fined if you pushed the fill from your swimming pool into your neighbor's property. But if you build one of those hydraulic fracturing wastewater impoundments, uh, you can push that fill onto your neighbor's property and you're not um, subject to the same legal regime. So it's beneficial to be in the oil and gas industry from that sense. Um, exempt from the Hazardous Waste Law, Resource Conservation Recovery Act, they are not 
subject to the federal Superfund law. They're not required to list on the toxic release inventory. Uh, they're one of the only large industries in the United States, the only large industry I know of that's not required to list on the toxic release inventory. Uh, 4,000 4, new wells being drilled monthly, 90% are fracked. Some say more like 95. It probably varies from month to month. Fracking uses um, three to eight million gallons of water, 600 different toxic chemicals. The only chemical required to be disclosed is diesel fuel. And so that leads us to the question, we, we, we've clearly got a problem here, um, which leads us to the question, what are we gonna do about it? What is the solution to this problem that we're facing? You all know better than most, all politics is local. So this is a map of New York where something very similar is going on to what's happening in um, the driftless area here with frac sand. Counties and villages in New York State are moving to ban or place a moratorium on fracking. This in turn is pressuring the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, to refuse to release the supplemental environmental impact statement for statewide to open the state to fracking. So the local activism and the local government action is in turn giving way to a, the, the state of New York to not have to open itself up to fracking. We have other actions going on across the country. People are mobilizing and activated on this all across the country. And, and that's the first most powerful thing that you can do in order to say no to this industry. For more information on the Citizens Frack Sand Summit, see www.landstewardshipproject.org and follow the Organizing for Change links to the report from the Citizens Frack Sand Summit page. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendell, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.